Well, again, welcome. I'm glad you guys are here this morning. My name's Aaron. I'm one of the elder candidates here at Trailhead, and uh, it's my joy to have the opportunity to open the Word with you this morning and, uh, and see what God has for us. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to the book of James, chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback one somewhere under the chair or one of the chairs in front of you, and I'd invite you to pick that up. And uh, in that Bible, we're going to be on page 1013. So just a little nitpicky thing. We've been going through the book of James for several months now. And if you have one of the books, if you've been following along in your personal study, you'll understand, um, you'll see pretty quick that we're, we're jumping out of order today. Um, it's complicated, just scheduling stuff, nothing all that interesting. I just want you to know that we're out of order. And if that bothers you, I'm really sorry. Okay, if you're one of those people who has to watch like every episode in order, you know, of whatever your show is, then you might want to just go ahead and leave and then you can listen to this one on the podcast after next week just so you get it all in order. Um, But I'll try not to spoil too much. We'll cover the passage that we we skip next week. So Um, we're going to look today at chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. So if you're there, if you would please follow along as I read James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. Come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. The word of the Lord. So um, this morning as we look at this passage of Scripture, I'm going to talk very specifically um, to those of you who, and and if you don't feel like this describes you, that's okay, Um, you can listen in. I I feel like this probably describes most of us, but um, I'm going to talk very specifically today to those of you who struggle with anxiety, with worry, uh, with doubts, with fear. Because I feel like James is very clearly addressing that topic. And maybe you don't see it that way on first reading, but as we dig into this, I think what we're going to see is that James is putting his finger on something that is very harmful to us. But we, again, don't see it that way because we believe that we're doing everything we can to help ourselves, to to save ourselves. And what James is going to tell us this morning is the very things that we're doing that we think are going to bring us to joy and peace and fulfillment are actually pushing us in the exact opposite direction. And it's a theme that he said over and over and over again throughout this book, that the idea that we believe that we can find peace and joy and happiness apart from God through our own means, and it never, ever works. It always leads to the exact opposite end, but we keep going back to it. And the way that looks this morning and what James is pointing out this morning is what that looks like when we try and ultimately always fail to control anything. When we try to control our lives, We try to control our relationships. We try to control our finances. We try to control our schedule. Ultimately, we try to control our future. 
And in doing so, we actually end up crushing the very things that would lead us to joy and to life. Now, let me explain what I mean by control here. Um, Because, again, as we work through this, it's going to look different than maybe the way we normally think of it. I think, honestly, all of us, in a certain way, are, are control freaks. And we don't, I mean, some of you know that, okay? Some of you people tell you that all the time, and you're just like, yeah, that's me. That's my personality. A lot of us, we don't hear that. We don't believe that about ourselves, but it's actually true. And here's what I mean by that. All of us have in our minds a desired future, a desired now, a desired reality, and and we want to do and we try to do everything we can to shape our lives to fit that desired reality. And anything that, that, that pushes against the way we think our lives should look, anything that gets in the way of, of what our life should look like becomes to us an obstacle, but it also becomes to us a point of stress. And the deepest tensions that you feel, the deepest stress, the deepest anxieties that you feel in your life, I'm just guessing here, but don't they often come from the very things that you most want to control? And the things that most feel out of your control. And what really stresses you out is the idea that there's something that you can't grasp a hold of and bend to meet your will. We want control. We go about it different ways. Some of us are, like I said, very aggressive. You know, everybody knows we have to be in charge. And we just tell people, I'm in charge here. You're going to do what I say. And we, we dive into conflict headfirst because we've got to bend everything to fit us. Some of us are very passive. And control to us means I want to be comfortable and any kind of conflict or any kind of discomfort, I just, I don't like it. And so in order to control my life, I'm just going to back off. I'm going to withdraw. But it's still an attempt at control. It's an attempt to make my life feel the way I want it to feel. Either way, leads to stress because they just don't work. And all our attempts to bend our lives, to direct them in the way we want them to go, they they don't work. And when we recognize that, we just go looking for more ways, new ideas, new advice. We read a book or, or, or we listen to a podcast or we go seeking advice from a mentor. But always our question is, what can I do What can I do to make this happen? So this is like really clear to me as a dad. If you're a parent, I'll bet you've somewhat felt this before because you desperately want your kids to be a certain way, to do certain things. But what you realize and what you recognize and what becomes very stressful to you as a parent If you're not a parent, this is why you probably would never want to be one. Is that you can't control other human beings. And it's really great when they're little, because they're a lot easier to control, except at night. Um, And so you can just like, one of the best things about little babies is you can just pick them up and move them wherever you need them to go, right? 
And the older they get, the heavier they get, and the less you can do that, right? And, the, the, and it's not just that, but it's they, they start to develop their own minds and their own will, and they want to do certain things on their own. And so you start, as a parent, you start pushing more. No, no, you have to be the way I want you to be. You have to behave the way I want you to behave. And what starts to happen is that even though the, the more you attempt to control their life, the more you lose control of the one thing that's actually what you most want, which is a relationship with your child. We'll get to that. I'm jumping ahead. The point I'm trying to make is just this. We want to know how to get better control of our lives. But what if, what if we are not actually in control at all and that's a good thing? What if letting go of the idea of control could actually be the most freeing, most life-giving thing that we could do? As we look at this passage, and I I just wanted to set it up that way because as I read this passage, James 13, it almost sounds harsh, doesn't it? There's this, almost feels like as I read it the first time, this tone, stop trying to make plans, you're a fool, you're about to die, and you're arrogant and evil, you're a sinner. And that's pretty harsh, right? Right? But actually, the more I dig into it and the more I looked at it this week, the more I thought, no, actually, what, what James is doing here is he's offering a beautiful, beautiful gift if we're willing to accept it. So let's work through this a little bit and see if, if we can see it in that way. Verse 13, he says, come now, which means come on, <laughs> right? Like, seriously, you who say Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. In other words, those of you, which is most of us, right, who have plans and have goals and have this is what's going to happen, and James is saying, "Uh uh-uh, come on, wait, 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 no, no. Now, why? Because you just read that verse, and what's wrong with that? I'm going to go here. I've got a plan. I'm going to go do that. I'm going to spend this amount of time, and I'm going to make some money off of it. What's wrong with saying that? Is James saying that it's evil to make plans? Is he saying that it's wrong to look into the future and to have goals or ambitions? Not at all. Partly look at verse 15 where he contrasts this. In verse 15 he says, instead you ought to say. So this is what you say, this is what you ought to say. And in verse 15 he says, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So the person The hypothetical person in verse 13 and the hypothetical person in verse 15 are both making plans. They're both talking about what they're going to do in the future. So let's make sure we're understanding at the beginning. James is not saying it's wrong to have an idea of what's going to happen in the future. What he's pointing out and the difference between verses 13 and 15 is how tightly we hold on to those plans. The speaker, the hypothetical speaker in verse 15 is speaking definitively that this is going to happen. I have decided this, I have decreed it, and I'm going to do everything within my power to see that this occurs. This is how it will be. I am going to go here, I'm going to do this, I'm going to make a profit. 
And therefore, if anything gets in the way, it's an obstacle that needs to be destroyed because I'm going to do what I've set out to do. The person in verse 15 says, I understand that this may not happen. I'm going to hold on. I have these plans. I'll live. I'll do this or that. But I'm holding them loosely. I'm holding them with an open hand, with the idea and the understanding that there's somebody else, somebody very specific in verse 15, who I'm going to give the opportunity to take those plans from me if he sees fit. That phrase, if the Lord wills, um, depending on kind of your background, if, if you grew up in a church background, you may have heard that phrase a million times before. People just tag it onto the front of like every sentence they say. And it, it just becomes meaningless. Like, are, are, you guys, are you going to the grocery store later? Well, if the Lord wills. Like, what? A, right? Because it's just like this, you know, like... <clears throat> James is not talking here about, here's an empty phrase you just need to tack on to everything you say to give lip service to the idea that God's in control. He's actually talking about an attitude and a heart that believes that there's a God who controls the entire universe. And that God who controls the entire universe will determine what happens. And regardless of what we plan, our plans will only come to fruition if it's within God's will, his desires, his grand plan. But the person in verse 13, which is most of us, we don't think about that. We think about our future and the way we want our future to go, and we make our plans and set our lives in such a way that we can achieve our desired end. And at best, When we think about God, we view God as a means to that end. Here's where I want to end up. How can I use God to get there? Which we've talked about over the course of studying the book of James is what what, what James refers to as worldliness. How can I use God to get what I want apart from a relationship with him? James is having none of this. In verse 14, he, he reminds us this is absurd. Verse 14, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. How can you say definitively what's going to happen? You don't know. And he says this part that, again, sounds harsh, but look at it. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. When I first read that, I thought he was saying, and and I think there may be a, a bit of it that is this. Our lives are short, and in the grand scheme of the universe... To, to, to imagine that we are going to control our fate when the whole world is happening all around us. Your life is so short. Why live for such small, insignificant things as going somewhere and making a profit? But the more I looked at this and the more I thought about it in the context of everything he says here, I, I don't think that's exactly what he's getting at. This is not James saying, you're going to die, it doesn't matter anyway. Because it doesn't matter anyway is not James' point. Instead, I think the key word here is mist. Um, the idea of mist, sometimes in other Bibles it's translated as a vapor. Think about vapor, mist. Uh, the book of Acts uses the same word, the same Greek word, in talking about smoke. Smoke. Smoke looks solid. 
but it's really not. <clears throat> Have you ever tried to grab hold of smoke? If so, I would say, why? What, were you, what was your point with that? But if you did, what would happen? As you attempt to grab it, it just dissipates. It looks solid, but it's not. It's there, it's real, but it's not a thing you can hold. And James says that is the perfect analogy for your life, for your future, for the direction that your life is going to take. It's real, it's going to happen, your existence is, is real. You actually have a life. Your life will go in a certain direction, in a certain journey, but you cannot grab a hold of it. And when you try to grab a hold of it, you're going to understand that it's not something that can be grasped. And the harder you try to grip onto it, the more it's just not there. It's not a tangible, physical thing to hold. And the more you maneuver and try to manipulate and try to get around, it's smoke. We, we try to convince ourselves that we can grab a hold of our lives and control them and direct them. Verse 16, James says, that's, that's arrogant. The idea that you in some way can control the shifting winds that will push the mist of your life around. You just can't. To put yourself in your mind in that position is to, to, to elevate yourself to the place that really only God can occupy. There are circumstances always outside of your control. And the more you try to grab a hold of what you think you can control, the more you understand that even that is smoke. And what happens when we try to grasp smoke? Well, first of all, we said we, we live in fear. Constant fear. Because we know, even if we were somehow to get a handful of smoke, that at any moment, it could just slip away. The more you try and try to control the events of your life, the people in your life, your schedule, the more you will worry about anything that could take it from you. Again, as you think about those things that most frighten you, the things that you worry about the most, is it because you understand that they're outside of your control and they could steal away something that you desperately want to be a certain way? And fear usually drives us to see anything that could be a problem, that could take away our control as an obstacle or an enemy. It leads to anger. It leads to shame because we know we're not controlling things in the way we want to. But we keep trying to hold on. The longer we try to grasp onto the smoke, the more likely that will crush what we're trying to control. Now, I've got to apologize as an English teacher. I know I just totally switched metaphors here because you can't crush smoke. I get it. 
okay? Um, but it's, it's a metaphor, and so just bear with me, because this is just true of control. The more we try to dominate and keep things the way we want them to be, the more we destroy them. If you've ever read of Mice and Men, uh, John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men, American classic, character of Lenny um, in Of Mice and Men is this big, hulking guy, huge, physically just massive, strong guy. But he's very immature, uh, intellectually very childlike. And he really loves soft things, specifically soft animals. His driving force throughout most of the book is he really wants to own uh, rabbits. But early on when we meet him, early in the novel, um, his friend George is yelling at him because Lenny has taken a mouse, which was soft. And he, he loved to just, just pet this mouse, and so he was keeping it in his pocket. But, but what's a mouse going to do? It's going to try to get away. And as the mouse tried to get away, and Lenny just had to control the mouse, he had to hold on to the mouse because he wanted that mouse. And again, and the, the implication in the novel is that this has happened multiple times, he, he's crushed and killed this mouse because he wanted so badly to control it, to keep it, to hold on to it. The thing that was beautiful that he thought was going to bring him joy, he destroyed because he realized, or, or he, he didn't realize, that he couldn't control it. You know, it's such a perfect analogy for so much of our lives. Again, going back to, to what we said about relationships. You're in a relationship, and whether that's a, you know, dating or a spouse, and you want them to be that person for you, and you will do whatever you can to make sure they become that person, and you use whatever methods you use of manipulation and control, and maybe you start to shape them to become the person that you think they're supposed to be, but in the process of doing so, you're killing the intimacy that is the very relationship you hoped to have. Because when we control, when we seek to control, when we, when we grab a hold and squeeze tightly, we squeeze the very life out of whatever it is that we're trying to shape. Ultimately, as we begin to understand, as we come to understand that we cannot control what we had tried so desperately to control, we find ourselves in a place of despair. When the inevitable unexpected happens. It breaks us. Because I have set my life and I've ordered my life. I think this one is so clear financially. I've decided that this is how things are going to be with my money. I have this much. I'm going to invest this much. It's going to return this much. And I'm going to save this much over here. And I'm going to spend this much over here. And I've got it all ordered. And something unexpected happens. And no matter how much we've braced ourselves, the inevitable, unexpected happens. And we say, but I, I controlled for that. I did this, I did this, I did this. And, and we start saying, I just need to control more. I need to control more. I need an emergency fund, and I need an emergency fund to fund my emergency fund in case anything happens to that one, and I need to back up that with this, and I need investments over here, and I need... And I need to work more, and I need to earn more money, and whatever it is, and we're just grasping for straws. But the more we do it, when tragedy strikes, 
And let's be honest, the more deeply we're trying to control things, the broader our definition of a tragedy becomes. Anything that gets in the way of our attempts at control becomes a tragedy, and when it happens, it shatters us. And either we go even deeper off, uh, off the cliff of trying to grasp, behold, and control anything and everything we can, or we just throw up our hands and say, I can't, I can't do it. I'm out. It's all over. It's impossible. And to the very extreme end, to where we despair even of life. I, nothing is within my control. Life is meaningless. I've tried and it doesn't work. And we try to grasp onto the smoke. We live in fear. We crush what we try to control. And we ultimately despair when the truth becomes clear that we just aren't in control. But what do we do? I mean, what's the answer to that? Because, let's be honest, we know this. None of this is a surprise. We've tried and tried, and we failed and failed, but we just keep going back because what else is there besides trying to find new ways to get better control? It's not that I'm doing something wrong. I'm just going about it the wrong way. But what if the problem is the idea of control at all, and the solution is not to find a better way to control our lives, then what is the solution? Is it just letting go of everything? Is James saying we just shouldn't care about anything? Is that what he's saying? It's just like live like a whatever, la-di-da. I'll just get up and whatever. Maybe there's some food I can eat, and then let's see what's going to happen next. Uh, somebody called, oh, sure, whatever you want to do, or maybe not, or I don't know, maybe I'll go to work, maybe not, I don't know. Like, is that the solution? No, not at all. He's not contrasting, look, he's not contrasting between making plans for the future and making no plans for the future. He's contrasting between believing we are controlling our own lives and giving control of our lives over to somebody who actually can control them. Verse 15 again. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. In James's day, this phrase, if the God's will, was a common phrase. Just the way we, like I said, we attach it in front of different sentences. It's an empty phrase. It was then, too, if the gods will. Because the gods' reference were mythological, fictional characters. They had no control over anybody's life. It was just a superstition to say it. But James is more careful than that. He doesn't say if the gods will. He doesn't say if God wills. He says if the Lord wills. And the use of the word Lord is intentional, I believe. Because Lord reminds us of something about God. It reminds us that he's in control. The Lord is the master. Our God is sovereign. That means he's in control. That means he's the master over everything. The solution for us, 
from our anxiety and our worries is not to just stop worrying. Don't you hate it when somebody tells you that anyway? You're worried about something, and they say, oh, don't worry about it. You hate that, right? That's not the solution. The solution is giving those worries to someone who actually can control it. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? Because again, this can become a black hole where we just go around and around and around. Well, if God's completely in control, then it doesn't matter what I do because he's in control. So whatever I do, he's going to use it. And so that was his will all along, right? So do I even have choices and on and on and on? That's not at all what James is saying. Again, look at the text. Verse 17, which seems to be out of context of everything else he just said. But he starts verse 17 with the word so. Meaning, there's a connection between everything I just said and verse 17. What is it? Here it is, verse 17. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. He's talking about obedience to what we understand to be God's will. So we understand, let me get a little bit theological here. Please stick with me. We talk about God's will in multiple ways. We talk about God's revealed will and his decreed will or sometimes hidden will, which means this. There are certain things God has plainly told us, this is what I want you to do. And in the Bible, those look like commands at times. And we can very honestly and easily say that that's God's will. That's what he wants. But then we look at that and we say, but that's not how the world always works. Sometimes things happen that would be against what God has said in his revealed will is what he wants. And that's because, when we believe Scripture bears this out, that God has what we call a decreed or a hidden will, which is his plan for how the world actually will unfold. We don't know it. We don't understand it. We'll never, on this side of eternity, be able to see what that will looks like. All we can do is trust that that's happening. What James is talking about in verse 17 is, (laughs) stop worrying about that one. Okay? Stop trying to figure out how all the pieces fit together. Stop trying to control what's going to happen in your life. Instead, focus on what God has plainly shown you. Here's what you should be doing. Here's the way life will work best. Here's the way you will flourish. Here's the way you will have joy. Obey those things God has shown you. And in doing so, You say, I am giving you, God, control over my life. Obedience. Obedience to what God has shown us is nothing more than trusting that he knows more and has a better grasp on your life than you do. When God tells you, here's how you should live. Here's a way I want you to obey me. When you obey, you're saying, I agree, God, that you know more than I do and that you want what's best for me. When we disobey, when it's clear to us that God says, this is the way life should be lived, this is what you should do, and we say, no, I'm not going to do that, we're either saying, God, I don't think you know what you're talking about, I'm smarter than you, or God, I don't trust you that that's actually going to be what's best for me. 
God, I emotionally, I'm not saying intellectually, all, all, most of us, intellectually, most of us intellectually, can at least go as far as God is way, way smarter than any of us. And so intellectually in our minds, we can assent, yeah, he knows what's best. But emotionally, there's this part of me, and probably a part of you, that has this fear of, but what's that going to look like? And what's that process going to be like? And part of that comes from the fact, and we've seen this, and we saw this in James chapter 1, that very, very often, the process God uses to get us to where he wants to take us involves pain. And it goes through trials. And it's not the path we think we want to be on. But what we've seen over and over and over again throughout James is the path we want to be on is usually the path in the opposite direction of where we want to end up. But in my heart, if I don't trust that God's will is for my good, then it's really hard for me to obey him in difficult times of obedience. I'm not talking about the obedience that's easy. I'm talking about that stuff that you know, you can probably pull to mind right now, something that you know you should be doing, you know God has called you to, you know this is what obedience would look like, but it just looks hard. It just would stretch you in a way that would just not be comfortable. And so you push back and you say, God, I, I know you're calling me in this direction, but I just can't go there. Ultimately, we don't believe that God's will is for our good. But let's think about this. Because this is the God who saw our sin, who saw our ultimate destination apart from him, the wrath that we deserved, and his will for us was to send Jesus Christ to this earth to live the, the perfect life that we just don't live, and to die, to be tortured, to be brutally murdered, to take our punishment on himself. And that's the God that we say, I, I don't know if I can really trust you. I don't know if your will is really for my good. God, you sent Jesus Christ to take my punishment on himself to bring me to you. But what if you don't really care about me?
God's actions to us are motivated by love. Through and through, no one forced God to send Christ to die for us. He chose by his will to sacrifice his son for you. And then to offer you as a free gift a relationship with him through that sacrifice. That's love. And yet we look at that and we say, yeah, but are you really looking out for me? Here's how messed up we are. We look at obedience as just another way to control our lives. If I obey God, if I do what God's asked me to do, then he'll do this, this, and this for me. If I obey God, then my life will turn out the right way. And it just becomes just another tool that we use in our manipulation. That's not what James is talking about here. That's not the offer that we have. What Jesus is offering to us, what God is offering to us, is to take the burden of control away from us, to free us from that madness that drives us insane. To say, what you cannot control, let me have it. Just obey me. Trust me with the results. You obey, I'll take care of what happens. Yeah, but what if I don't like that? Trust me. Yeah, but what if it's not the way I view things turning out? Trust me. Can we trust him? Can we trust the God who is in control of the entire universe? Can we trust the God who would sacrifice his own life for us? Can we trust him more than just to pay lip service? To just say, if God wills, can we trust him enough to obey even when it's difficult, even when it stretches us, even when it takes us outside of what's comfortable? Can we trust him even then? This is, again, such a beautiful invitation. James is saying, the God of the universe wants to take from you the burden of trying to be your own God. Will you trust him with that? Will you obey him in that difficult obedience? And let him have control. Look, I mean, he's in control anyway. You're not. Would you like to have the peace and the joy that could come from resting in him along the journey? That's the offer here. Let's pray. We'll have a time where you can respond, think through, pray. And then we'll share communion together. Heavenly Father, God, you have told us 
repeatedly that you love us. But, oh God, through Jesus Christ, you've shown in such a miraculous, vivid, graphic, tragic, beautiful way your amazing love. God, that we would trust in you, trust in that love. Instead of trusting in our own abilities, our own intelligence, our own plans, God, that we would let go of all of that. Just let you have control. That we would obey you. As we make our plans, as we look at our lives, that we would do so with obedience to you at the forefront. God, please break our hearts again with your gospel. God, give us the strength that we do not have on our own to follow you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.